Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. Today we continue our study in the book of Revelation as we look into what the Lord had to say to the church of Smyrna, the second of the seven that He addressed, and a church that would suffer great persecution. We're glad you're with us today. Let's listen as Pastor Phil draws our attention to Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. First love can be restored if we follow these three instructions that Jesus gave. First of all, we must remember. And the Greek is literally keep on remembering. I don't think this is a one-time deal. I think it's something we have to do every day, or at least periodically. As we remember how it was when we first accepted the Lord. And that's the goal, that we always stay there. You know, when we first fell in love with Him, but we first received Him. We need to constantly remember how it used to be. Because that's the goal. Yes, to grow, but to stay with the emotions, the passion. So remember. how I'm challenging you guys to remember when you first received the Lord. Remember how that was. Remember how you felt. Then repent. Which means to have a change of mind. That leads to a change of direction. Some of us are moving away from God. We don't even mean to do it. We're just busy. We've allowed activities and maybe hobbies or maybe the pursuit of material things to to get in there. And they've become a little bit of a love for us. They're competing with our love for the Lord. The word first there is a word that also means supreme, the greatest. God is our greatest love and nothing else should compete for that love for him. Nothing should take us away from He has got to be our supreme love, our first love. So remember, keep on remembering how it used to be. Repent. Put it in your heart to get rid of anything that's competing for your love for Jesus. And then thirdly, repeat the first works. Now some will say, well, what does that mean, though? Repeat the first works. What does that mean? Well, one pastor put it this way. He said, what were you doing when you, when you were on fire for the Lord? Well, I was going to church. Well, go again. I was getting up early for morning devotions. Do it again. I sang praise to the Lord as I drove down the street. Sing again. What did you do when you first fell in love with the Lord? Get back there. Do those first works. Guys, how was it when you first met your wife? That When you first met and fell in love, what did you do? I used to bring her flowers. Well, bring her flowers again here and there. Really? Flowers? Yeah, flowers. Well, I used to take her out to dinner. And it wasn't a clown head I was talking to when I ordered. <laughs> well, try that once in a while. That will really blow her mind. You know? I used to get dressed and look nice. And well, How about you try that once in a while? Do your first work. Repeat those. Remember, repent, and repeat. I think it's the key to restoring any relationship, not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with your spouse. I think all of us this week should meditate a little bit on this, maybe a lot. How was my relationship with the Lord when I first got saved? How was my relationship with my spouse when we first met and fell in love? I need to get back there. 
I've taken her or him or the Lord for granted. No wonder I'm dry. No wonder I'm unsatisfied in my relationship with God. Look, if you're feeling far away from God, guess who moved? You may have turned your back on him, and you may have walked a million miles away from him. If you will turn around, you'll find he's right behind you. Because he made a commitment to you. And he said, I'm not leaving you. I'm not going to forsake you. can walk away from me. I'm not going to walk away from you. And any time you're ready to come back to me and to get serious about this relationship, I'm right there. And we'll just pick it right up where we left off. Remember, the passion of Paul's heart in Philippians where he said, it's my passion that I what? Know him. Paul, you were a Christian for what, 30 years or so by this time? Don't you know him? Of course you know him. He wanted to know him more and more each day, though. He wasn't satisfied with where he was in his relationship with the Lord. He wanted to constantly go forward and have an even deeper relationship with the Lord. That must be our heart. That's got to be our heart, to know him more and more each day. To never be satisfied with where you are because you never live a static Christian existence. Either you're moving forward or you're sliding backwards. That's just the way it is. So we always need to keep going forward in our relationship with him. Well, verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In spite of the privileges it had enjoyed, the church of Ephesus was in danger of losing its light. Not its salvation, but its witness is the idea. And when Jesus said in verse 5, I will come, he's not referring to the second coming, his, his return. He's talking about coming to them in judgment and dealing with them then and there. He's not talking about, I'm going to come and I'm going to cast you into hell or anything like that. He's just, he says, I, I'm not going to live in a loveless church. I will not live in a loveless church. I don't care how much service you're doing or how many things you're, you're sacrificing. If it's a loveless church or if your heart is a loveless heart, Jesus, I'm not, I'm not going to live there. I, I'm going to take my light and, 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 and remove it. Your witness is going to be shot. So that thing about it is the city of Ephesus, as glorious as it has once been, today is a heap of stones. There is no light shining there. There's no Christian witness. There's ruins. They're pretty um, impressive ruins. But ruins are dead. They're dead stones. We are living stones. Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where the light comes from. Remember the oil burning lamps? Oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? Well, you don't do it. He does it. But what you and I do is we keep drawing close to him every day. And then he keeps filling us with his Spirit. And the light keeps on shining. Verse 7. He who has an ear, and he doesn't mean the ears in your head. He means the ears of your heart, basically. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the what? Churches. Every church got all seven letters. Every church got all seven letters. Because in any church, in any given time, some of these qualities might be going on. And in our own lives individually. And then we finally see the promise here in verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, be careful. As a young believer, when I read this, I got terrified. 
Oh, my goodness. What if I don't overcome? I'm not going to make it. Oh, my God. You know, you get all worked up. First John 5, 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. When he says, he who overcomes, what he's really saying is he who is a genuine Christian. He who has really put their faith in Christ is a Christian. And as such, it is the right of every child of God who is saved by grace, not by their works, that when the Lord comes for us someday, we're going to enter into the paradise of God, another way of saying heaven, and we are going to eat of the tree of life. In other words, we're going to live forever. That's the idea. It's not a limited to a special group of Christians who, you know, are really, really holy and, you know, and, 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 and the rest of us, you know, are just, you know, spiritual doofuses. We don't make it because I can overcome. No, it's you've overcome through him. You're in Christ. He overcame the devil. He vanquished principalities and powers. You are in him. Therefore, you're victorious in him. You've already overcome by the blood of the lamb. But it's interesting. And we'll finish with this. The Bible is the story of, uh, and paradise uh, is a word in Greek that means garden. Heaven is likened to a garden. You know that in the Bible, the Bible is the story of two gardens and two trees. Opens up in the Garden of Eden, a paradise that man forfeited because he ate of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. But two or 4,000 years later, another tree became very important. We call it the cross. Jesus was crucified on a tree, the Bible says. And that gained us access back into paradise someday, heaven, another garden that will be eternal. Isn't that beautiful? But right now we live on this earth. And right now we struggle. And we have, you know, periods where we feel dry and dead inside. Let me just say this to you. Jesus Christ wants to have a romantic love relationship with you and I. He does. And I believe if we will really make that a goal, that we stop going through the motions and really start getting back to Jesus and why we do all we do, this is not an end in itself, folks, to come here and study the Word. If this is an end in itself, it's just a dead motion. I'm not saying the Word is not important and wonderful, but it's all about a person. If it doesn't direct us to Jesus, if we're not looking at it to do that, if we're not looking at it as a process that brings us closer to him instead of an end in itself to build my intellect, you know what? It's empty. It's worthless, really. It's just dead motion with no emotion. What you need to do is this week, remember how it used to be. Don't settle for where you're at right now. Don't ever settle for the wilderness when you can have the promised land. And you get on your knees this week after you've meditated and realize, yes, I have moved away from God. I have my heart is cold. It's gotten cold. It's my own fault. I let it happen slowly over time. I started to back away from my commitment. I started to let other things get in there, new hobbies, new pursuits, new loves. And they have competed with my love for Christ. And now I find myself kind of cold and dead in the wilderness. That's okay. He loves you and he can fix that. If you will right now acknowledge it, repent, turn, and begin to go back to where you once were. Get up, spend time with him. Not because it's your duty, because it's your devotion. Seek him like you used to in prayer because you love to talk with him, not because you're looking to get things from him. I mean, go back there and say, Lord, 
this is all I can do is go back, just the way you admonished me. But Lord, would you fill me with the passion again? And I believe he will. And uh, the next in line is Smyrna. Smyrna, which uh, we have called the persecuted church. And we can read about the church of Smyrna, or the letter Jesus dictated to it in verses 8 through 11. So let's read it. Where Jesus said unto the angel or the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, that are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This letter is really only four four verses long. It's really more of a postcard than it is a letter. And I think it's very interesting. I think it's significant, actually, that to the church suffering the most, Jesus said the least. I think that's a good lesson for all of us who are ministering to those who are suffering. Let me just give you some quick points to remember. When you're ministering to somebody who is suffering, especially those who have suffered loss of somebody very close to them, say as little as possible. Just be there to show them that you care. Be sensitive. I think a big one is to help them with practical things. You know, when somebody's grieving, they don't have to worry about getting the oil changed in the car or cooking meals or who's going to watch the kids or I've got an errand I have to run. Take charge of those things. Be a, just a real practical blessing to them when they're going through these very difficult times. And above all, fight the urge to preach to them or give them pious platitudes. Things like, they're in a better place. Or all things work together for good. We know that. At the moment I'm suffering loss, that's not helping me. I know these things. Remember this. When we suffer, for whatever reason we suffer, at that point, we can choose to fight and complain or we can submit and learn. Look, none of us can choose whether or not we suffer. We're all going to suffer. One of Job's friends rightly pointed out that man is born to adversity as surely as the sparks of a firefly upward. We cannot determine whether or not we suffer, but we can determine what the suffering does in our lives. It's up to us in how we handle the suffering, whether it's going to make us bitter or better. That is up to us. Well, as we've already seen, the name of each church is significant. Smyrna means bitter. The city of Smyrna was named after one of its principal products, which it was commercially famous for, and that was myrrh. In fact, the word Smyrna, the root is myrrh. 
that was named after this particular product. What is myrrh? Well, it's a resin that comes from the dried up sap of something called the Camophora tree. Whatever that is, I don't know. This is what I've gotten as I've been studying. They they would harvest this uh, this myrrh by cutting the bark, and it would then this this sap would ooze out, kind of like the, what they do with the rubber trees. They would slash the bark, this stuff would ooze out, this sap, it would dry, and the resin was myrrh. Then they would use it for different things. The theme of this letter to Smyrna, the theme is suffering and death, which is fitting because myrrh was used to embalm the dead. But myrrh was also used to make perfume for the living. The fragrance of the myrrh could only be released by crushing this substance. It was only when you crushed it that you released the fragrance of it. Very significant. Because here was a church that was being crushed by persecution. And as they were being crushed, and yet dying faithfully for the Lord, they were releasing the the fragrance of Jesus, you might say, was being released, who also suffered and died, but was faithful to his Father. There's something about suffering in the Christian life that has a way of releasing in our lives the fragrance of Christ if we, again, handle it properly. I mean, just by virtue of the fact that, you know, that we're being persecuted or we're going through some difficult uh, situation, maybe it's a health issue or a financial issue or a marital problem or there is something with one of the children, maybe one of them is a wayward teen or something, and we're handling it in the grace of God and we're singing praises to Him, we're just trusting God, That's a a, a sweet fragrance of Jesus to the people of this world. But again, the key is that they were being crushed, and that's how this, this fragrance was being released. One author put it this way. He said, At Smyrna, unlike Ephesus, there was no waning of love for Jesus Christ. Because the believers at Smyrna loved him, they remained faithful to him. Because of that faithfulness, they were hated. Because they were hated, they were persecuted. That persecution, in turn, incited them to love Christ even more. Kind of funny how that works. If you, a person, is not a genuine child of God, when persecution comes, they're gone. Because nobody who's playing church wants to stick around and be persecuted. But if you're really committed to the Lord and you start getting persecuted, a funny thing begins to happen. The more you're persecuted, the more you're driven to Him. The more you're driven to Him, the more you love Him. Of course, the more you love Him and stand up for Him, the more you're persecuted. But the world tries its best to stamp out Christians, to stamp out the light. And as you keep drawing close to Jesus, the light keeps getting brighter and brighter. You know? God lit a fire in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And here comes the world to try to persecute and stamp it out, the Jews and whatever. And all it did, you ever try to take, a, if you got a fire going, you, you take your boots and you try to stomp on it, you know? What do you do? You just shoot the embers everywhere. And that's kind of what happened. And the church spread. If you remember, myrrh was one of the three gifts that was presented to Jesus after his birth by the wise men, right? The others were gold and frankincense. Of course, gold spoke of his kingship. Frankincense was used as an incense in the temple, and so it spoke of his priesthood, and myrrh, of course, spoke of his death. Now, the Bible tells us during the millennial kingdom, people are going to come to Jerusalem to give Jesus gifts of gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. 
Why no myrrh? Well, first of all, he remains a king forever. He is our high priest who will never die again. And myrrh, no myrrh because his death is behind him. So gold and frankincense will be given to him in the millennial kingdom. Now, before we actually look at the verses and what Jesus said, I just want to give you just briefly some of the background of the city. I think it's helpful to kind of get an idea what these cities were. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time. It's just not important. But I want to give you a flavor of what this city was all about. Smyrna was an ancient city. Some believe it could have been settled as far back as 3000 B.C. We know the first Greek settlement was in Smyrna there at 1000 B.C. Around 600 B.C., Smyrna was destroyed by the Lydians, and it lay in ruins for about three centuries until two of Alexander the Great's successors decided to rebuild it in about 190 B.C. And it was that rebuilt city of Smyrna that John knew in his day. Although Ephesus and Pergamos equaled or surpassed it in political and economic importance, Smyrna, they say, was said to be the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. It was located on a gulf of the Aegean Sea, and unlike Ephesus, was blessed with an excellent harbor. Eventually, uh, Ephesus's harbor, which really wasn't a... Uh, their, their harbor was inland. It was really the mouth of a river that led from the Aegean all the way to Ephesus. Eventually, it silted up. And when it silted up, of course, commerce dried up, so the people left. So today, it's uninhabited. But in contrast, Smyrna had an excellent harbor. And in addition to its natural beauty, which surrounded the city, the city itself was well-designed, they tell me. It, was, it stretched from the bay up the slopes of Mount Pagus, which was a large hill covered with temples and other public buildings. The streets were also well laid out, and the outlying streets were lined with groves of trees. So it was a very beautiful place, especially as you were approaching the city by sea. It was just a gorgeous uh, place to behold. Smyrna's most famous street, which was called the Street of Gold, curved around the slopes of Mount Pagus. On the one end was the Temple of Sibylle, and at the other end was the Temple of Zeus. And in between, there were temples to Apollo, Aesculapius, and Aphrodite. Smyrna was also noted as a center of science and medicine. It was one of, the, one of several cities that claimed to be the birthplace of the poet, uh, poet Homer, and um, as I already said, unlike Ephesus, which today is uh, uninhabited, Smyrna survived several earthquakes and fires and exists today as the Turkish city of Izmir. And they say it has a population of several hundred thousand people and uh, roughly one third are professing Christians. So today there is still a church in ancient Smyrna, again called Izmir. Well, verse 8 Jesus said, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and who came to life. Jesus begins this letter with a title of himself from the vision that John saw of him in chapter 1 that sets the mood of the letter. He first of all calls himself the first and the last. As we've already seen, this speaks of his eternal nature. Only God is eternal. Only God is eternal. In fact, when Jesus called himself the first and the last, he was actually calling himself by a title that appears frequently in the Old Testament uh, with regard to Jehovah. 
Jesus was calling himself Jehovah God here. You can read in Isaiah 41 verse 4, 44 verse 6, and 48 verse 12, where God calls himself the first and the last, the beginning and end, the Alpha, the Omega. All these titles Jesus chose to call himself by, connecting him to, of course, Jehovah God. He is Almighty Jehovah God, not some lesser God, as some cults teach. He is Almighty Jehovah God, the second person of the Trinity, who was dead, he said, and came to life. Now, every title Jesus chose to call himself by was significant because it spoke in some way to what each church was going through. Here's a church that was being, so, was being persecuted. Many were being killed for their faith. And Jesus calls himself the one who is dead and is alive again. Can you imagine the comfort that would have given the church there in Smyrna? But Jesus is saying to them, look, don't forget, I was dead once, but I rose again victorious over death. Death couldn't hold me, and death will not be able to hold you either because you belong to me. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Well, then he gets into the commendation in verse 9. He says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. Set free.